In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same Spirit that we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Happy Easter. It's a joy to have you all here tonight. Um, just one housekeeping note. I have to cancel um, the meeting that was supposed to be in two weeks from today. Uh, I will be on my annual retreat. I didn't schedule it early enough to plan around it. Uh, and I had very few other major commitments that week, so it worked well. Uh, what, what that means... Um, so as I, tonight will be on the seventh commandment, and as I prepared for tonight, uh, I realized that we have only one more meeting um, after this one, prior to uh, Memorial Day, and I don't think I will get through uh, the seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth commandments between tonight and that next meeting. Um, so just by a show of hands, would you prefer to a, go in, can just keep going until I finish uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, or B, postpone until next year. I think my preference is A. So all those in favor of just continuing uh, as long as it takes to get through the Ten Commandments, great. It's pretty much unanimous, so that's what we'll do. Uh, <clears throat> okay, yeah. I'll let you know the schedule, but figure we're going to meet again four weeks from today, uh, and then um, between now and four weeks from today, I'll come up with a schedule to get through the rest. It'll also be helpful because I may get through the whole seventh commandment tonight, but my bet is not. I don't want to go more than an hour. Uh, it's already been a very long day that started with Mass at 6.30 this morning. <laughs> so... Um, <clears throat> Any other housekeeping questions? No? Great. Also, um, I've asked Kristen, our communications director, to reformat the website that uh, hosts uh, these talks uh, because it's been, it's two websites. The old ones are on one and then this year's are on another. I asked her to just put them all together. So I'll let you all know as soon as that gets updated, if, in case you want to share them, um, I've begun asking um, anyone who starts inquiring about the faith to listen to them. Um, and I know some of you, uh, at least a few of you are here, uh, in part due to RCIA. Uh, so um, I hope that it's a good resource for you and, and for those who might inquire about the faith and be willing to put in, I think at this point we're up to somewhere between 30 and 40 hours of listening. Um, so, without further ado, the seventh commandment, you shall not steal. I don't know if I've highlighted this in these talks, but I know that I've highlighted it in uh, homilies about the Ten Commandments. Each of the commandments is, with the exception of the uh, first and fourth commandment is principally given in a negative form. You shall not. Um, 
But all of the commandments, regardless of whether they are in a negative form or a positive form, all of them both forbid and command a a whole variety of things. The seventh commandment forbids unjustly taking or keeping another's goods or wronging him in any way with respect to his property. It positively commands justice and charity with respect to earthly goods and others' work. In order to understand anything with respect to this commandment, we have to understand two principles, first and foremost. First, the universal destination of goods, and second, the private ownership of goods. The church upholds both of these. So, the universal destination of goods. This is very straightforward. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve, to whom the whole world was given. Therefore, the whole world was given to all of us, collectively. Therefore, there is nothing that belongs to someone so absolutely that it is utterly exclusive, that it is just for a person to bar anyone from any kind of access of any kind to it. The goods of creation are destined for the whole human race. They are a gift to all of us collectively. This is the primer, the prior principle of the two principles of the universal destination of goods and private property. Between those two, the universal destination of goods has priority. It is first chronologically, it is also first principally. We can only really understand private property if we first understand that the material world is created for the benefit of all people. Gaudium et Spes says, in his use of things, man should regard the external goods he legitimately owns not merely as exclusive to himself, but common to others also, in the sense that they can benefit others as well as himself. In other words, private ownership, private property, is in service to the universal destination of goods. One might one legitimately have private ownership of something so that he can make it useful for everyone. So now private ownership. Practically, the earth is divided among all people. All of the earth, well, maybe not all, but most of the earth is, has someone who claims ownership of it or some collective whether it be a state or a a collaborative effort, a, a corporation. Private ownership is truly good. It allows, or it, it, it provides at least three necessary goods. First, it guarantees freedom. Because a great deal of our ability, of the gifts that God has given us innately, 
actually pertain to the use of material things. Being able to have material things that are our own guarantees our freedom to use those talents which God has given us. It also, private ownership also protects human dignity. Because private ownership allows us to own things rather than have those things own us. We, those things exist to serve our needs rather than we existing to serve the, the, the material world. Does that make any sense? Sure. Um, so, I think an example might be the created, or the, I'm sorry, the ancient Egyptian community in which the Israelites were slaves. The Israelites were treated as servants of the material order. They had to build all these things. They had to reorder the material world in Egypt. And what they were producing was treated as more valuable than the Israelites. Private ownership, if they had owned what they were working on, would have allowed them to assert their own dignity as greater than what they were producing. Yeah. So that communism? Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, and, and I'll get to that. But yes, communism has been very, very forcefully ruled out by the church, repeatedly, starting with Rerum Navarum in 1893. Uh, I think it's 93. 1890s, I know that for sure. Furthermore, private ownership allows for creativity and productivity. The United States is actually a really great example of this. Thomas Edison, in his drive to make uh, electricity and illumination, like streetlights, widely available, because he had great wealth and was able to be in touch with those who had even greater wealth than he, was able to pay for this service, and he, he pushed the world forward in this convenience only because he was able to do it pri with his private wealth, or private wealth that he had access to. Now, could a public entity have done this? Or could corporate ownership of something have done this? Sure. But not as efficiently as he did. Uh, so private ownership actually allows for greater creativity and productivity. Does that make sense? Also, it's a little bit easier to risk failure when you're risking something that is your own, for which you only have yourself to face consequences, rather than some, something that belongs to someone else or to a, a, a corporate entity where you have the wrath of many people, potentially, if you fail. But again, private ownership does not do away with the universal character of the gift of creation. It is rather in service to it. And, and the, the term that the church uses to describe this is stewardship. 
A steward is responsible to the owner. Well, in the case of the material order, the owner is God. And the human race as a whole. And so a steward of some private property is responsible to God and to the human race for how he uses that property. He has a moral responsibility to make that property fruitful. He also has a moral responsibility to share the benefits of that property with others. And here the Catechism helpfully points out that his first responsibility to share with others is with his own family. And then from there, but starting with one's own family, with those for whom one is responsible. On this point, I, maybe this, you'll find this helpful, maybe you'll find it not. I recently, just a few months ago, on reflection, in the past five years or so, I've bought maybe four lottery tickets. <laughs> In the past five months or so, I've resolved never to do so again. Because I have enough. I don't think I'll ever be extraordinarily wealthy. But I will also never be extraordinarily poor. And if I were to win the lottery, my life could only get worse. <laughs> I would just have more responsibility. I would have more stuff to manage. And I would have a responsibility to manage it well for the good of the whole world, for the good of the whole society. I would have greater responsibilities. Perhaps some of you could be more creative and are more willing to be generous in stewarding all that property. So go ahead and buy lottery tickets if you want. I won't. <laughs> Those who own goods that are ordered to production, so land, buildings, factories, also talents, managerial and and practical or artistic talents, skills, have a responsibility to use those goods in a way that serves the whole of society, that potentially employs many people, or that provides for the needs of many people. And those who own goods ordered to consumption... So think here of, of foods, think of, of things that you'd likely buy at a Target or a Walmart. Those who own goods ordered to consumption should use them with moderation. Here, here the Catechism also, also offers us a helpful reflection. Reserving the better part for guests, for the sick, and the poor. I don't think we think about that often enough. We live in the United States. All of us have profound access to consumer goods. I mean, the government, I think there's legitimate reason for this. I'm not mocking it. But the government gives away cell phones. <laughs> right? We have consumer goods 
far beyond what we could have imagined a hundred years ago. And even then, we had more consumer goods than almost anyone in history. We don't often think about the fact that we actually ought to use goods for our own consumption in moderation, trying to allow our guests, the sick and the poor, to have better than we have. In terms of the balance of these two principles, the universal destination of goods and the legitimate right of private ownership, political, political authority has a right and duty to regulate the balance between these two principles. The way the Catechism puts it, Brenda, you had a good reason to be late. <laughs> the, the way the Catechism puts it, um, is in terms of the common good. And this is helpful because political authority should always be exercised for the sake of the common good. Whether it's in terms of regulating private property or anything else, it should always be for the sake of the common good. Any questions there on the universal destination of goods and the private ownership of goods? Yeah. So the question is, what about buying expensive gifts uh, for another? I don't see anything that I've said or anything that the Catechism says as definitively ruling that out or as definitively affirming it as good. I, I think there's room for that kind of thing. Uh, consider our Lord actually encourages uh, the woman who... Uh, had demons driven out of her, maybe it was Mary Magdalene, spending almost a year's salary on a momentary gift, pouring fine oil on Jesus' feet. Christ doesn't discourage this. If that's not an extravagant gift, I don't know what is. <laughs> That'd be like spending forty or fifty thousand dollars on a massage. <laughs> Right? That's extravagant. <laughs> uh, but our Lord allows it. So I think that there is room for that. Uh, I think always with a question like that, the, the key is to look at, at virtues. Are you doing it out of pride? Are you doing it to draw attention to yourself and how generous you are and how wealthy you are? Or are you truly being benevolent? Is it truly an act of charity? Is it purely to show affection and love for that person, to, to uh, affirm that person and, and, and remind them that they are loved. Right? I, I think th so I think there's room for that kind of act. Um, but I think one would have to be careful um, in, in examining why, what their motive is. 
if we understand the universal destination of goods and, and the legitimacy of private ownership of goods, and we hold them in balance, we will, in doing so, affirm and, and almost proclaim to the world appropriate respect for persons and their property and the relationship between them. So with respect to the things that a person owns, human dignity requires temperance so that neither we nor anyone uses material goods in excess. Temperance with respect to material things moderates our attachment to them, enables us to let go of them as we need to, whether it be for some greater good for ourselves or the needs, legitimate needs of others. It also requires the virtue of justice. I think it's very helpful to remember the, the most basic definition of justice, giving to each his due. Think of that in terms of the universal destination of goods. Finally, it requires solidarity. Solidarity is a difficult word to define, but I would say that it is an awareness of the unity between yourself and others, an awareness of what you hold in common. It is, it is the awareness of the relationship between you and another that allows you, enables you to live the golden rule, treat others as you would be treated. It's an ability to put yourself in their shoes and actually understand what they might desire in the circumstances in which they find themselves. In addition to respect for human dignity, we have to have an appropriate respect for material goods. We have to think of them as creatures, not just stuff, but something that God willfully created. This is where the, straight, the simplest reading of the seventh commandment is explicitly applied. If we have a healthy respect for material goods, the goods of others, we will not steal. We will not commit the sin of theft. Theft is explicitly committed by intentionally retaining goods that someone lent to you or something that someone else lost, taking it for yourself when you do not have legitimate right to it. it theft is committed by fraud, particularly business fraud. Scripture repeatedly condemns paying unjust wages or withholding wages. Business owners have a great deal of responsibility when it comes to the seventh commandment. Those who own the means of production. Theft is also committed uh, by essentially price gouging, by manipulating prices in a way that takes advantage of someone's ignorance or of their dire circumstances.
I want to read to you a brief paragraph from the Catechism that I think is really helpful uh, in, in understanding how private ownership and um, the universal destination of goods fit together. There is no theft if consent can be presumed. So if you borrow something from one of your siblings, that's not theft. Because probably they'd say yes, depending on their mood. But there is also no theft if refusal is contrary to reason and the universal destination of goods. This is the case in obvious and urgent necessity when the only way to provide for immediate essential needs, food, shelter, clothing, is to put at one's disposal and use the property of others. So the premise of Les Miserables is that Jean Valjean was arrested for breaking a window and stealing a loaf of bread. This is not a sin. In the eyes of the church, stealing a loaf of bread to feed yourself or those you're responsible for is just. It is actually a virtuous act because of the universal destination of goods, which takes precedence over private ownership. The Catechism also lists a number of related sins that are not direct theft, but are directly related to it. Price speculation and artificial price manipulation. I mean, the SEC is a good thing, right? Because it, it fights against such unjust acts. Corruption. This is one that I think is very common. Appropriation and use for private purposes of common goods held by an enterprise or corporation. Taking home printer paper from work is stealing. <laughs> and we could give many other examples uh, similar. Doing your work poorly is a form of theft. Tax evasion, a form of theft. Now, I have two uncles who are lawyers. There's a difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance. Tax avoidance is good. Tax evasion is a sin. <laughs> Forgery of checks and invoices. In addition to being a form of theft, it's also lying which we'll cover in the next commandment. Excessive expenses. Spending more than you should, spending more than you need to, to provide for your needs. Waste. Now these are difficult to evaluate, I'll admit, especially excessive expense. Because as I already said, I don't want to rule out absolutely lavish gifts or lavish experiences. There's the place for that. But waste is evil. Pope Francis uses the term throwaway culture a lot. I think he's onto something there. I think we should try to avoid 
uh, waste as much as possible, reasonably. This is not to say that we should never use plastic. I mean, I think there are some who would say that because we could do a lot without plastic before plastic was invented. And we wasted a lot less when we didn't use plastic, saran wrap, uh, plastic bags. I'm not going that far, but I think to what extent we can reasonably avoid using plastic. I mean, probably most people could reuse their Ziploc bags, for example, rinse them out, wash them out, let them dry, and use them again. They're never going to decompose, you know. (laughs) And then willfully damaging another's property, whether public or private. This is a kind of theft, an extension of theft. And it is a sin. Then the Catechism turns also to contracts. We have a moral obligation to fulfill our contracts. So, I've heard of schemes of using bankruptcy to benefit yourself. This would be a sin, willfully seeking to take advantage of bankruptcy. Now, that's not to say that a Catholic should never enter into bankruptcy. No, sometimes the circumstances of your life demand it. And the state allows it because it's actually better for society if no one completely collapses financially, economically. But to willfully violate your contracts to make your word meaningless by willfully seeking to take advantage of bankruptcy, while it might not be a crime that you could be prosecuted for, it is a sin. There are three kinds of justice having, that the church highlights here in the Catechism. What we've been talking about thus far is principally commutative justice. Justice within a community, among individuals within that community. And justice between institutions within that community. The second is legal justice. This is what a citizen owes to the whole community as mediated by the state. I just want to highlight here very briefly, commutative justice and legal justice are both moral. They're both moral. They both impose moral obligations on us. But not everything that is demanded by the moral law, demanded by commutative justice, is demanded by legal justice. The state doesn't outlaw every sin. This is really important for us to understand as Catholics because our culture, our society, principally looks to the law to tell us right and wrong. As Catholics, we ought not do that. Finally, distributive justice pertains to what the community as a whole owes its citizens. As with all sins, sins against the seventh commandment do harm to others. That harm requires reparation. The the Catechism talks about reparation here 
as opposed to, or it gives more emphasis to it here than in any of the other commandments, because here it's most obvious and concrete what that looks like. If you steal property, you have to return it. If you destroy property, you have to replace it. If you take advantage of property illegitimately that belongs to someone else, you have to restore the benefit to them. This is not only those who directly steal, but anyone who benefits from theft should make reparation. I want to offer a little clarification there. The Catechism says, all who in some manner have taken part in a theft or who have knowingly benefited from it are obliged to make restitution in proportion to their responsibility. The reason I want to read that to you precisely is because there are claims in our country that anyone who um, is white should pay reparation through the government to anyone who is black because of the harm done by slavery. Now, there's a way in which that seems to fit somewhat. Except that anyone who's white and alive today did not directly benefit from slavery and certainly did not willfully benefit from slavery. So at this point, any, mean, any method of making reparation in a direct sort of way would create all other kinds of injustice. But what we ought to do is recognize the harm done by historical evil structures like slavery and do what we can in an individual sort of way to repair such damage. Does that make sense? The Catechism also addresses games of chance, gambling. In themselves, they're not sinful. They can become sinful in one of two ways. More gravely, more seriously, they become sinful when they deprive someone of what is necessary to provide for his needs and those of others. So for someone who is not an addict... Going to a casino once in a while is not sinful. If, they, if this money that they bring and spend is money that they can comfortably afford to lose. For someone who is impoverished and is looking to the casino to try to have a quick fix for his economic troubles, this is sinful because he cannot afford to lose anything. The other way that gambling becomes morally problematic is when it becomes an addiction, or or games of chance, when they become an addiction. When they uh, constitute, uh, or I'm sorry, when when they consume a person's time and attention and keep them from their responsibilities. The Catechism explicitly says that cheating at games constitutes grave matter. 
It's a mortal sin. Unless the damage inflicted is so slight that the one who suffers it cannot reasonably consider it significant. So I'd say for your children to cheat at Monopoly, that's probably not a mortal sin. <laughs> the harm done by cheating at Monopoly is not significant. <laughs> Especially if you're the banker. <laughs> but it is sinful nonetheless. After addressing the dignity of the human person and the dignity of, or the appropriate respect for material goods, the Catechism turns to respecting the integrity of creation. Creation is God's gift. All creatures, whether animate or inanimate, rational or irrational, give glory to God by their very existence and are created by God for our good, for the good of humanity, both past, present, and future. Therefore, our dominion over created things is not absolute. Our dominion over them is limited by the common good, by the good of, of our fellow human beings. That includes future generations. Animals, which are living things, demand a high degree of reverence from us because life is mysterious. It is extraordinary. We should look at any living thing and be in awe. Scientists have tried for decades to replicate life in a lab, maybe for millennia even. And they can't. No matter what they do, they cannot create life. Therefore, any living thing demands a far greater degree of reverence and awe than any inanimate object. And even inanimate objects deserve our respect because they are created by God. However, animals are not rational, and so they do not deserve anything even approaching the reverence that we owe to other human beings. We can, therefore, use them. We can use them to make our work easier. We can use them like dogs and other pets to get, bring us comfort and enjoyment. We can even use them for food and for experimentation. But such uses have to be within reason. They have to be moderated by our anticipated, uh, the, by the anticipated benefit to us. We cannot just perform experiences or experiments on animals because we want to. We, there has to be some purpose, some meaning to it. It is contrary to our dignity as stewards of creation to abuse animals. I want to emphasize that. The abuse of animals is more contrary to our dignity than it is to theirs. So, as much as PETA might get some things right in the, in the end of what they're advocating for, their motive is wrong-headed. They're motivated by the dignity of the animal. 
But the church tells us that we should be motivated by our dignity as stewards of God's creation. The Catechism also says, it is likewise unworthy to spend money on animals that should, as a priority, go to the relief of human misery. One can love animals. One should not direct to them the affection due only to persons. I think spending some money on care for animals is is reasonable. Pets, to which we have an emotional attachment, or animals that do work for us, farm animals. But spending exorbitant amounts of money is not reasonable. Spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on our own pets, not reasonable. Probably better to simply put them, put them down. Does that make sense? Here the Catechism turns to one of, I'd say, the most recent category of church teaching, the social doctrine of the church. The social doctrine of the church arose as a category of of teaching at the end of the 19th century in the industrial era. Economic forces, industrial forces, social forces that had not existed in the world prior to that were dominating people's lives. And so Leo XIII wrote his encyclical Rerum Novarum, of new things. In it, he laid the foundation for what has become the church's social doctrine. So the social doctrine of the church is in service to the dignity and vocation of man. It reveals that all of human enterprise should be in service to our infinite dignity, both as God's creatures and those whom he redeemed, and our vocation to be in union with him, not only in this life, but for all eternity. In her social doctrine, the church asserts her right to make moral judgments about economic and social matters. The church has a right to condemn certain institutions, certain uh, structures, certain laws that pertain to economics and social matters. The church should exercise that right when the fundamental rights of the person or the salvation of souls requires doing so. It's important that we understand, in fact, this is a topic that I love to talk about. I'm not going to spend much time on it at all tonight, but it's important to understand that the church does not claim to have the right to govern states. I think the best way to think about it is that she has the right to say no to certain policy proposals within states because those policy proposals are contrary to human dignity and and the human vocation. You see the difference? The church does not want to put herself as a super government over all governments. 
Rather, the church wants to rule out certain behaviors or certain policies by states. Yes. By, by saying, no, that, you can't do that. That's evil. You can't make abortion legal. That's evil. But the church doesn't want to impose herself on the, on the United States or on any particular state with the intention of saying how birth should be regulated, how, how, um, how the practice of an OBGYN should be conducted. No, the church has no interest in managing that. The church only wants to reserve for herself the ability to say certain things that you might propose in that area, you can't propose because they are evil. Does that make sense? The church, within her social doctrine, lays down three fundamental principles. There are more than this, but three enumerated here. These are, I think, the most foundational. First, any system in which social relations, relationships are determined entirely by economic factors is contrary to the nature of the human person and his acts. We cannot think of people in terms simply of their economic impact. Second, profit as the exclusive norm and ultimate end of economic activity is morally unacceptable. Third, every practice that reduces persons to nothing more than a means of profit enslaves man, leads to the idolizing of money, and contributes to the spread of atheism. In the encyclicals and magisterial documents of the church on the social doctrine of the church, the church is trying to uh, respond to two competing worldviews, socialism or communism and capitalism. She rules out definitively socialism and communism because they are atheistic, because they fail every one of the principles that I just enumerated, they are definitively condemned. She responds to capitalism by saying that individualism and the absolute primacy of the law of the marketplace over human labor goes too far. Capitalism get some things very right. But regulating the economy uh, solely by the law of the marketplace fails social justice because of the universal destination of goods. The marketplace does not acknowledge that some people simply need. They do not have anything material to contribute. Such people are not, therefore, of lesser dignity and unbridled, unregulated capitalism would just churn such people in, churn them up and and throw them out, leave them discarded.
Therefore, reasonable regulation of the marketplace and economic initiatives is to be commended. Again, the SEC is a good thing. Question? Well, I would argue that a corporation's purpose is not simply to make a profit. A a corporation that sees its purpose as solely to make a profit has already violated what the church teaches on uh, on, uh, social justice. But some of what they do is also competitive in order to stay in business. Sure. So we talked about this a few times ago. when I talked about the third commandment. And the church does not definitively rule out commerce on Sunday. The church says that to what extent it can be, it should be avoided. But it does not definitively rule it out as evil. It does not say that going grocery shopping on Sunday is a sin. But I think that to what extent we can avoid it, we should. Does that unsatisfyingly answer your question? I do, but I think you're asking a question that goes beyond the scope of what I'm trying to teach. Because uh, I, I, I think you're asking for more specific rules than the basic principles that I'm trying to offer. Because the basic principle is the good of the human person takes precedence over profit. But as, I, as you'll see as I go on, profit matters. And, and the church does not offer I think the rule you're looking for her to offer, at least not in the catechism. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm poor and I have the opportunity to work on Sunday and an employer affords me that opportunity, I almost would consider that an obligation of mine to work on Sunday to feed my family. It, It may well be. That's right. It may well be an obligation to work on Sunday uh, when that is the only opportunity presented to you. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I think, I think that's why the church wants to avoid giving an absolute on that kind of question. Does that make sense? So, Fulton Sheen would profoundly disagree with you. 
Because communism is not of God. Because communism makes no reference to God. It's not principally ordered to persons or to God. It's principally ordered to stuff. And, and, and further, it, so um, any system in which social relationships are determined entirely by economic factors is contrary to the nature of the human person and his acts. That is where communism starts. It defines people according to the, the, uh, the uh, bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Right? It defines people according to purely economic factors. So communism from the very beginning is ruled out. Because it takes the dignity of the person. Correct. Is that why you have to address like these young people that think socialism and all that stuff is already people point to the acts of the apostles and say, well, that was communist. No, it wasn't. Because everyone who participated in that did so voluntarily and they did so for the good of the other persons and the good of the community intentionally. It was not a system that defined them according to some economic standard. It was a system where they willingly contributed what they, con- what they could. That's right. And we define you in purely economic terms. Correct. So communism and socialism are definitively ruled out. They are not good. Period. I think that's right. Although I will say, I will say, much of that is because the difference between the terms conservative and liberal 50 years ago was very, very different than what it is now. Um, I mean, the the social issues, there wasn't such a divide as there is now. Uh, uh, And on economic issues, there wasn't the divide that there is now. Um, But allow me to go on. The church then turns in the catechism to um, justice within economic activity. Economic activity, our economic life, our, our participation in the economy is not solely for the multiplication of goods and services or for the increase of profit or power. It is first and foremost to be ordered to the good of persons. Work is a duty of all human persons. Work honors the gifts that God has given us. It makes use of them. So I know someone who was immensely successful who retired at somewhere around 35, a multimillionaire. He does not have the obligation to work in the same way that he worked before that, but he does have an obligation to work in the sense of 
performing some service for society. Now, he might do that on a volunteer basis. He might do that through the, the, the service of, of forming his family well. There are many ways to do that. But work, in terms of performing some task for the good of others, is a duty, an obligation. We have a duty to do so. Doing so is also a participation in the redemption. It is an imitation of Christ who worked. It also, in some sense, fulfills the potential with which God created us. God created us in his image and likeness. Well, he is a creator. And he's given us the potential to participate in that, to imitate that through our work. In this sense, work is for man. Man is not for work. You see the difference? We don't exist so that we can do some task. Those tasks exist so that we might be fulfilled and imitate God. Work is also dignifying in that it allows us to provide for our families and for ourselves. Because of this, we have a right to work. The Catechism calls it a right to economic initiative. But we have a right to be creative in the work that we set ourselves to. The church then enumerates certain responsibilities of the, st- of the state with respect to the economy. The state has a responsibility to protect individual freedom and private property. We said at the outset the values, the goods of private property, the benefits of private property. The state has an obligation to protect that. The state has an obligation to provide a stable currency and efficient public services. The principal task of the state is to guarantee this security so that those who work and produce can enjoy the fruits of their labor and thereby be encouraged to work efficiently and honestly. Honestly. Again, the church is much more conservative than she is presented as by many. The state, according to the church, has an obligation to protect private property and individual freedom and to provide public services and currency. The Catechism then goes on to say that overseeing and directing the exercise of human rights in the economic sector is also a a duty of the state. But this duty falls primarily not to the state, but to individuals and groups and associations that make up society. In other words, the social services that are provided by the state should not be provided by the state unless only the state can provide them. That sounds pretty darn conservative to me, economically speaking. That's not to say that the state should provide no social services, but that the default should be for private individuals or private groups to do so where possible. The church then 
turns from the state to look at business owners, those who own the means of production. They have a responsibility to consider the economic and ecological effects of what they do. They have a responsibility to consider the effect of their uh, plant on the environment. They have a responsibility to consider the goods of person, the good of persons, and not only their profits. Does the do the working conditions that they create for their employees actually benefit those employees? Now the catechism explicitly says here, profits are necessary, however. <laughs> the competitive advantage of profits is actually good for society. This is one of the arguments that, that uh, libertarians might make in favor of unbridled capitalism. That actually, profit is an indicator that something is actually needed. If producing something or, or providing some service is profitable, that's because it is demanded by society. There's truth in this. But that profit is not the goal. The good of society has to be the goal. Does that make sense? And this is where unbridled capitalism goes awry. It prioritizes the profit, not the common good. Business owners also have the, uh, the obligation to offer employment without unjust discrimination. They also have the obligation to pay a just wage, which is the legitimate fruit of a laborer's work. Again, to refuse to pay a just wage is an injustice that cries out to heaven. It is a grave sin. The needs and, com and contributions of each person must be taken into account when considering wages. It should guarantee, wages should guarantee a person, a laborer, the opportunity to provide a dignified livelihood for himself and his family. An agreement between the parties is not in itself sufficiently, sufficient to justify the amount to be received in wages. It's a good start. But... I think what the catechism has in mind here is something like the, the robber, baron, robber barons in the late 19th and early 20th century when people worked ridiculous hours, hours that would be inconceivable to most of us today, when they were paid next to nothing and they lived in slums and they were basically slaves in terms of their lifestyle. They accepted the wage, right? But as you say, they had no choice. They were slaves of the wage. They were wage slaves. This is not just. Now, again, helpfully, I think, the catechism doesn't give absolute concrete rules or boundaries to this because there might be a circumstance in, say, an economic depression, 
where the owner is not making any money and is trying to provide what he can to his laborers, but they're both impoverished in the work. But that's the best work they can find. This is not an injustice on the part of the employer. That makes sense? I think that's correct. Yeah. That's the thing, but that's but that's the dilemma. So many people think that you know something you know like this is worth that kind of money. I think that's correct. The the church doesn't have a formula by which she can say this is how much everybody needs to be paid because it's it's very very complicated um, figuring that out. But it, it, it does clearly emphasize the obligations of justice on employers. Uh, they absolutely need to work to avoid taking advantage of their employees. The responsibilities of workers are briefly addressed. They have an obligation to work honestly and fruitfully. They have a right to strike and to unionize. A strike is morally legitimate when it cannot be avoided, or at least when it is necessary to, to obtain a proportionate benefit. But it is morally unacceptable when it is violent, or when it is seeking um, an outcome that is not directly connected to the common good. I have two brief sections left. I think I could probably finish them in less than 10 minutes. Would you be okay with me continuing? Great. The last two sections are justice and solidarity among nations and love for the poor. There is much more to say about these than the Catechism says, but the Catechism addresses them briefly. First, it acknowledges the reality that there is a profound gap between nations. Some are extraordinarily wealthy and some are extraordinarily poor. In the relationships between nations, we must work to dismantle usurious financial systems. And if I, if I can reveal how deeply conservative I am, this is actually a point where the catechism, where the church is far more conservative than most people, even, even conservatives, realize. The most usurious system, in my opinion, in the relationship between nations, is the American propensity to print money. Because our currency is used as the standard for currencies around the world. And when we print more dollars, we devalue those dollars that are held by other states, even poor states. And in doing so, we impoverish them even further. This, perhaps more than anything else, is the reason that we should be opposed to an enormous national debt, because that debt is managed by printing dollars. And this is deeply unjust in terms of the relationship between nations. 
I'm very conservative. <laughs> Further unjust uh, structures between nations are the arms race and imbalanced commercial relations between nations. Free trade is actually a just structure. However, that's not to say it should be with no regulation because free trade can be a means by which even though the state is not imposing an injustice on an impoverished nation, corporations do and they take advantage of the free trade to produce products in a, in a place where there are wage slaves and then ship them to a place like the United States where they can charge enormous amounts. We have to work to end those unjust structures. Rich nations also have an, a responsibility toward those poorer nations which by historic events or by their own state have been impeded in their development. This is actually a point where the United States, though far from perfect, is actually somewhat admirable. The United States has done probably more than any other nation to, to uh, enrich other nations. So we do not need to hang our heads in, in shame simply because we're American. We do, however, need to be aware of where our, our system creates and deepens uh, economic injustice. Interestingly, the Catechism says that direct aid is good and useful to respond to immediate extraordinary needs. But it always, always falls short of responding to long-term, enduring problems. Those problems need structural change, and they need the reform of, of those, those evil structures that I mentioned already. In relations between nations, we ought always seek to increase awareness of God and understanding of the dignity of the human person. Our efforts to improve relationships between nations should always put the material at the service of the person. Finally, the church turns to love for the poor. Perhaps you've heard the expression preferential option for the poor. This is a term that for a long time frustrated me because when I heard the term used, it was almost always to defend welfare programs that go far beyond a safety net, but actually are essentially nothing more than redistribution of wealth, of government-ordered redistribution of private property. But I think the Catechism says, or describes preferential option for the poor beautifully. So I'll just read it to you. In its various forms, material deprivation, unjust oppression, 
physical and psychological illness and death, in its various forms, human misery is the obvious sign of the inherited condition of frailty and need for salvation in which man finds himself as a consequence of original sin. The misery, this misery elicited the compassion of Christ the Savior, who willingly took it upon himself and identified himself with the least of his brethren. Hence, those who are oppressed by poverty are the object of a preferential love on the part of the church, which, since her origin and in spite of the failings of her many members, has not ceased to work for their relief, defense, and liberation through numerous works of charity which remain indispensable always and everywhere. What I find so beautiful about that is that the preferential option for the poor should be our stance as Christians, should be the posture of the church, because we are poor. We are the beneficiaries of Christ's benevolence in our poverty. And so when we see human misery in whatever form it takes, we should see ourselves and Christ's love for us. And we should be inspired to love as he loves. This is the justification for the works of mercy, the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. If you don't know them, look them up. I won't list them now. We should see in the Gospels, in the Beatitudes, which explicitly uh, list poverty as, as a spiritual virtue, Uh, We should see uh, this preferential option for the poor in the poverty of Jesus and in his genuine concern for the poor. And we should be aware that this poverty is not, or this preferential option for the poor is not only with respect to material poverty, but also with respect to cultural, religious, and moral poverty. Importantly, love for the poor is incompatible with immoderate love of riches or their selfish use. St. John Chrysostom writes powerfully on this subject. Many, many things could be said here from St. John Chrysostom. But he says, not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. Christ himself, repeating a line from the Old Testament, said that we will always have the poor with us. We will never be finished caring for the poor. We will never be finished in exercising this preferential option for the poor. It should nag at our conscience and lead us to be more and more generous, to grow more and more Christ-like. For those of you who have a scrupulous conscience, however, it should not lead us to desperate self-condemnation because we have private property. Remember, private property is a good that enables us to exercise fully our humanity. As I said at our men's group last night, if everyone gave away everything, then everyone would be poor. (laughs) Yeah. I have a problem with when I I travel quite a bit. And when I come across panhandlers, my initial look at them is 
So I think that, I think I have wrestled with this dilemma, the dilemma of panhandlers myself. I used to uh, be assigned to the cathedral when I was a seminarian. There are a lot of panhandlers at the cathedral. Um, and I've taken different approaches at different times. I don't think I ever give out money, ever. Largely because in cities, at least, there are both public and private institutions that serve the poor. If they really wanted help, they could get it. Uh, it's, it's available. That's right. Very often, I'd say much more often than not, not always, but more often than not, panhandlers panhandle not because of poverty, but because of psychological problems whether it be addiction or depression or anxiety, they cannot, because of psychological impediments, they cannot be economically productive. Well, yes, we are. But the question is, how do you take care of them? So I would encourage you not to ignore a person because they're persons, right? Acknowledge them. Say hello. Offer a prayer. Maybe, if you can, offer them some encouragement or affirmation. But I don't give them money. If I have the time and ability, maybe I'll buy them a meal. Or if, if they have awful shoes, like if, the, if they really are in need, maybe I'll buy them shoes. I feel comfortable doing that because I'm six foot four and 230 pounds. <laughs> It'd be hard for someone materially to take advantage of me like that. So that's not appropriate for everybody. But I think at, at least acknowledging their personhood uh, is a really strong start. I think there's certainly room for that, but even that, I would say, I wouldn't strongly encourage that because those who have addiction problems will just trade it. Um, I mean, I, I, I know this. I've seen it happen. <laughs> um, and, and so in the face of, of panhandlers, do respond to their personhood. Respond to their humanity. But also be very aware that there are places for them to get really much more substantial help than five bucks. Um, and and maybe maybe you have the the six one one number available for them in 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 Wisconsin at least. I think it's six one one. Well, it's not just mental health. It's, it's like a whole array of social services. Yeah, I think it's 611. Um, but um, maybe, you, maybe you have in mind the places that you could point them to. Um, I think that's a good question, though.
Yeah, I don't think I'd encourage that. I, I think rather let your uh, genuine love for their humanity be the means that God uses to prick their conscience if that's what he desires. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, I think in some abstract way. I I think that I would classify that under uh, scandal. Um, probably the fifth. Um, um, but uh, but I don't think you're you're wrong to to connect it to theft. Uh, Right. Right. Any other questions? Great. Let's acknowledge Our Lady, and I'll give you a blessing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.